God empowers the future king to save a stubborn people. Imagine what it would be like to play hide and seek with God. Like you would be hiding and he would be finding. Now, now part of normally playing hide and seek is that if you hide well enough, the person who's looking for you won't be able to find you. And then when they give up, you come out and you've won. But you really can't imagine that happening with God. If you hide from God, he already knows where you're going to hide. He knows why you're going to hide there. He knows what you're thinking when you hide there. And he knows where you're going to hide in the second and third rounds if you keep playing. So it seems that it would be pretty much impossible to play hide and seek with God. At least hide and seek in the way it's usually played. God sees all. God knows all. But sometimes we forget that, don't we? We forget that God sees what's going on in our lives. We forget that God sees when we're going through difficult times. We forget that God sees us in situations in which we're losing hope. So it's good for us to be reminded of the fact that God sees. It's good for us to be reminded of the fact that God knows and that God cares. We'll be reminded of some of these things in our scripture passage today. We're back again in the book of 1 Samuel. This morning we'll be looking at 1 Samuel chapters 9 and 10. So I would encourage you to turn there in your Bibles. You can also see the passage printed in your bulletins. If you remember from last week, we considered that salvation is only found in God and not in any human king. God does use godly leaders. As he used Samuel as a judge, he listened to Samuel's prayers in delivering God's people from their enemies in chapter 7. But then we saw in chapter 8, the Israelites were calling for a king so they could be just like the other nations. The way they asked for a king was a rejection of God, their king. But God still tells Samuel to obey their voice and make them a king. That's where we left off at chapter 8. So what would happen next? What kind of man might Samuel appoint as the new king? Before we jump into our scripture passage today, I'd like to introduce a main point to help us consider what's going on in our story. And that main point is this. The seeing God 
empowers the future king to save a stubborn people. The seeing God empowers the future king to save stubborn people. This sermon will be split up into three points. Point one, God sees. Verses, chapter 9, verses 1 to 26. Point two, God empowers. Chapter 9, verses 27. Chapter 10, verse 16. And point three, God saves. Chapter 10, verses 17 to 27. So God sees, God empowers, God saves. Let's begin with point one, God sees. First open to to 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 to 26. Please follow along as I read. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bacharath, son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise. Go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuch, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him because he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. 
for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about thirty persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See, what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. So here we're introduced to Saul. And in order to be introduced to Saul, we're introduced first to Saul's father, who is said to be a man of wealth. And then Saul is described. What stands out about Saul is that he is tall and handsome. In other words, if you just looked at the men of Israel and guessed or thought who looks like a king, it would be Saul. A striking, good-looking guy who you could easily picture wearing a crown, riding a horse into battle. But at this point in our story, becoming a king is about as far-fetched of an idea for Saul as for anyone else. Instead, his father has just asked him to to go and look for their family's lost donkeys. So Saul takes a servant with him, and they're going from place to place looking for these donkeys. Saul is ready to give up on the donkeys, but, but Saul's servant has an idea. Saul's servant says they could go and ask the man of God where the donkeys are. Later in verse 9, we see that this phrase, man of God, can be equated with the word seer, or the word prophet. The word seer emphasizes seeing in a spiritual way, with spiritual eyes. Whereas when we think of the word prophet, we think of someone who is proclaiming God's words directly, just as God had spoken to that prophet. Both are referring to the same role. At first, Saul isn't so sure about his servant's plan, asking again, like, well, what, what, what could we give the man of God if we meet him? Saul's servant, again, has an answer. 
He has brought with him some silver that they could give to the man of God. It's interesting to pause just for a second and consider what this brief exchange with Saul and his servant tells us about Saul. It does seem that Saul's servant is a, a better problem solver than Saul is. And it's also interesting that Saul's silver servant knows where the man of God is, whereas Saul does not. Perhaps Saul's servant takes more seriously the worship of God. But whatever the case, Saul listens to his servant's advice, and they go and look for this man of God. At first, the identity of the man of God is hidden, but in verse 14, the narrator lets us know that the man of God is Samuel. And then verses 15 to 17 help make this short story much more understandable. Verses 15 to 16 say, Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time, I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I've seen my people because their cry has come to me. Here's where we clearly get the idea of God seeing his people. First, in the beginning of verse 16, we learn that Saul's coming to Samuel was an act of God sending Saul to Samuel. The donkeys being lost, the location that Saul and his servant ended up in, the servant's idea about going to see the man of God, all these things were, were part of God's plan. God was seeing and overseeing the story. God is ruling over these events. Israel may have rejected God as king, but God is still king of the universe. He can direct milk cows on a straight path to Israel, as we saw back in chapter 6. And he can help donkeys find very good places to hide. What was about to happen in Saul's life was all according to God's plan. So does God watch over our lives in a similar way today, even if he has no plans to make us king of a country? The Bible would point to the fact that God does. God's sovereign hand is guiding. Proverbs 16 verse 9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You may have experienced this at different times in your life as well. For example, hearing some of your testimonies, whether in conversing with you or hearing some of your testimonies at evening service, it's interesting to consider the various events, the various people, the various things that brought you to belief in God. And it just so happened that then a Christian friend invited you to church or you opened up your Bible or you heard a message from God's Word that felt directed right at you. These stories remind us that God is still at work today. He is still directing. He is still watching. He is still leading. That does not mean we know or understand why he's leading in a particular way at that time. 
If we had donkeys and lost them today, we probably wouldn't know why God had us lose our donkeys. But whatever the case, we trust that God sees. And not only does God see, but God cares about what is happening in the lives of his people. We can say that God's choosing of Saul isn't really about Saul. It's about what God is doing for his people. In the end of verse 17, God says, For I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. God sees the suffering of his people and he hears their cries. They're, they're, this echoes God hearing the cry of his people when, when they were slaves in Egypt. And God's appointing of a king to deliver his people from their enemies is God's response to what he sees. God sees what the lives of Israel would be like if they were to be under the dominion of the Philistines. And God chooses to have mercy on them by choosing a king who God would use to deliver them. The Israelites did not deserve this mercy. We saw that from their attitude of rejection of God in the previous chapter. And yet God still chooses to show this mercy to them. So whatever you're going through right now, remember that God sees and that God cares. These are our simple truths. And when we're faced with trials and suffering, we need to hold on to these simple truths. The king of the universe sees you and cares about what is going on in your life. He hears you when you cry out to him. In verses 18 to 21, we have an exchange between Saul and Samuel. Samuel tells Saul that they will eat together that day. He assures Saul that the donkeys have been found, and he speaks highly of Saul and Saul's family, to which Saul replies that he is a Benjaminite, the least of the tribes of Israel, and of the humblest of all the clans of Benjamin. In verses 22 to 25, a feast is prepared at the place of worship, and Saul is given a choice portion. Samuel also prepares a place for Saul to stay the night. Saul, speaking of the tribe of Benjamin being the least of the tribes of Israel, reminds us of what happened towards the end of the book of Judges. There the rest of the tribes of Israel had to basically slaughter many of the Benjaminites in battle because of the sin of Benjamin. So it would make sense for Saul to speak in this way of his tribe. It, it wasn't that long ago in history that this happened. Now one can imagine that Saul would have been very surprised to have been invited to a meal with the man of God and to be seated in a place of honor this fellowship meal with a man of God would be so different from, spoiler alert, but towards the very end of 1 Samuel, a meal Saul would have shortly before his death. God sees, and God has revealed to Samuel what to do. And Samuel just acts according to God's orders. 
That brings us to our second point. God empowers. God empowers. Please look with me from verse 26 until chapter 10, verse 16. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Get up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal. And behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. So we've come to the point in our story where Saul is anointed the first king of Israel, the future king of Israel. Samuel pours oil on Saul's head, says that Saul shall reign over God's people and save them from their enemies. Samuel then gives Saul signs from God showing that what Samuel has said is true. Samuel gives three very specific signs. These are not 
things that could happen by accident. Many of you know what fortune cookies are, and many of you, including myself, thought they were from China before we came to China. Then we realized, oh, they're from California or someplace. Um, but on a fortune cookie, when, when it, it tells you something that's going to happen in your life, it keeps it very vague so that it will possibly happen. Like, oh, this year you'll meet a friend for life or something like that. And maybe something like that happens and you're like, wow, the fortune cookie was right. But that's not what is happening here. Did you see how, how specific the prophecies that Samuel told Saul were? Well, three people will come, then two people will come, and this is where you'll meet him, and that is where, and then this person will give you two loaves of bread. It's very, very specific. Proving to Saul that this is God speaking through Samuel. So three men going up to God at Bethel, one carrying the bread, has, will give bread to Saul and his servant. Saul and his servant will run into a group of prophets near a garrison of the Philistines. Saul himself will begin to prophesy. And after all these things happen, Samuel tells Saul that he can do what his hand finds to do, for God is with him. Since God is with Saul at that time, he's free to do what he wants to do because that will be in line with what God wants Saul to do. At the same time, Samuel does give Saul parameters in regards to going down before Samuel to Gilgal and waiting there seven days before Samuel comes to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. So there's freedom, but there's also instruction. Verses 9 to 13 focus on the fulfillment of of the third sign. Verse 9 speaks of God giving Saul another heart. The Spirit of God does rush upon Saul, and Saul prophesies like one of the prophets. This later becomes a saying and a proverb. For those who knew Saul and knew his father Kish, it would have been very, very surprising to see Saul prophesying. And for some period in that time, in that area, it became like a proverb. So you can imagine situations back in that time after this happened. Like, wow, those two got together. I would never have guessed that. And the other person would reply, is Saul also among the prophets? Just thinking, wow, that's so surprising that that would happen. Now it's in this section that Saul is empowered by the Holy Spirit. God is with Saul. God gives him a new heart. God takes control in Saul's life, and Saul prophesies just like one of the prophets. This is not the last time that the Spirit of God will work in Saul. At first, we'll see the good ways that God empowers Saul to commit faithful acts. If you're familiar with the rest of the story of Saul, it might be easy to jump to what Saul's like towards the end of his life, but here we meet Saul as a young man. And God is not opposed to Saul. Instead, at this point, God is with Saul. God's Spirit rushes upon Saul. In the Old Testament, we see the Spirit of God empowering people for particular acts or of service or for particular seasons. So the Spirit comes and goes in a different way than after Jesus 
sent the Spirit to live in us as believers. The New Testament speaks of Christians being sealed with the Spirit. There's a permanency that is different than what is described in the Old Testament. And so here the Spirit of God rushes upon Saul and he acts just like a prophet. God's empowering of Saul would happen again in the future, but sadly would not characterize most of Saul's reign. God would not always be with Saul in the way that he is in these verses. But if you're here today and you are a Christian, God is with you. God's Spirit lives in you. And you're called to abide in Christ as Christ abides in you. There is a oneness with God, a unity with God that is such an incredible privilege for us as Christians. The Spirit does not simply rush upon you for a particular task, but you are indwelt by the Spirit, and He continues to empower you, to live in you. And when God is in us, we're united with Christ in a way that seeps through our very beings. We can, as Samuel said to Saul, do what our hands find to do. Because of God living in us, our desires are changing to be in line with God's desires. Our hopes and dreams and aspirations are changing. We become more and more about living for the glory of God and not living for ourselves. And so we can do what we want to do. Because what we want to do is in line with what God wants for us. That, of course, does not mean that we ignore God's law. Samuel still had instructions for Saul. God still has instructions for us. But as we're a new creation in Jesus Christ, obedience to God becomes the normal way for us to live our lives. So brothers and sisters, let's continue to abide in Christ as Christ abides in us. And let's continue to follow the example of Christ. Now after this high point of Saul being empowered by the spirit of prophesying, it seems strange to get to verses 14 and 15. Saul's uncle is curious about what Samuel told Saul. But Saul hides what what Samuel said about Saul being the future king. Instead, Saul only tells his uncle about the donkeys. Now, what's going on here? My guess from looking ahead to the next section is that Saul is afraid. He doesn't want word to get out that Samuel has anointed him the first king of Israel. We're not really sure if what Saul's attitude towards this, if he's actually willing to accept the role. Saul may have been changed when the Spirit rushed upon him to prophesy, but not long after, it seems that there's not much boldness in Saul when he speaks to his uncle. So we come to the end of this second point, thinking on God empowering by his Spirit. Let's take joy in the fact that God is with us. That brings us to our third point. God saves. God saves. Please look with me at chapter 10, verses 17 to 27. 
Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul the son of Kish was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his own home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. So the people gathered together, but he held his peace. Okay, so the people gathered together to the Lord at Mizpah. Samuel speaks to the people on behalf of the Lord. Samuel speaks of how God has saved the Israelites in the past. He is the God who delivered them from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of other kingdoms that oppressed them in the past. God is the God who saves. Moses wasn't Israel's savior. Neither was Joshua or Gideon or Samson or Samuel. These were men who God raised up, but salvation, deliverance, is only in God. And Samuel has to admonish the Israelites again that what they're doing is sin. Samuel tells them that today they have rejected God by saying, set a king over us. Samuel was being faithful to his prophetic role. He spoke of God's salvation, reminding Israel of who truly had saved Israel. And he also admonishes the people of Israel to repent of their sins. Well, one would imagine that at this kind of setting in which a king would be announced, there would be a, a buzz in the crowd and expectation. But Samuel wants to begin this gathering with a sober tone. He wants to begin by confronting the people on their sin. Because Samuel understood that the Israelites' hearts were not right. This was not a happy day. This was a sad day because Israel was displaying the rejection of God for a human king in order to be like the other nations.
And so Samuel again admonishes the Israelites for their sin. But the Israelites continue to happily ignore their sin. So let this also be a warning to us. Are there sins that we happily ignore? Are there sins that we try to pretend are not sins? Are there godly people in our lives who have spoken to us more than once in regards to a particular sin and and still we don't listen? Warnings against sin are meant to be words spoken in love. Words that are spoken in view of the fact that this person or that person's relationship with God is of the greatest importance in their lives. And so unlike the Israelites, when these sins come to light in our lives, let's be quick to repent. And when we see these sins in in one another's lives, let's be willing to speak the truth in love. God is merciful in warning the Israelites time and again, what are they doing? We continue to look at verses 20 to 21. Samuel shows the choice of king by casting lots. This king is appointed by God. But from what we know of Saul so far, and what we will come to know of Saul, it seems that God is choosing more according to the wishes of the people in choosing Saul. We see Saul's height again is mentioned here. He has a kingly look. So it seems like the Israelites are quite happy to excitedly shout, long live the king, as soon as they see Saul. But why in this process did did Saul hide among the baggage? Even at this point, the Israelites need God's help. God, where did our future king go? He apparently hid quite well even for being a big man. So why did Saul hide? Outwardly, he may have looked kingly, but inwardly, it would seem that he's afraid. It seems like Saul himself questioned God's choice of king. Perhaps he thought someone else should be king instead of him. Perhaps he didn't feel ready or was afraid of the responsibilities that being king would entail. This would not be the last time that Saul is afraid. It isn't a good sign that as he's being publicly announced as king, he's hiding. But I think we can relate to it as well. There are times when fear may stop us from taking on responsibilities that God would have us take on. So that's different than humility. Humility is realizing that we are small, we are weak, but we trust God with that. In a way, hiding from responsibilities that God gives may be a quite proud thing to do, even if we don't think of it that way. In order to save my own face, I I don't want to put myself in that kind of position where I might fail in front of a lot of people. But what if God has appointed me to this task? Should I not then trust God with it? We continue. It doesn't seem like there's any coronation speech. But the people are happy with Saul. 
Then from verses 25 to 27, Samuel tells the people the rights and duties of kingship. The king is still meant to abide by God's law. And the people are to be familiar with these laws in regards to their king. Then everyone goes home. But there were men of valor whose hearts God had touched who went with Saul. These supporters of the new king are sent in contrast to the worthless fellows who said, how can this man save us in regards to Saul? Even though the Israelites were rejecting God and asking for a king, God shows his mercy to the Israelites in giving the king laws to follow and giving the king trustworthy supporters. These supporters of the king are those whose hearts God has changed. God will use Saul in the future to deliver his people from the hand of the Philistines. And Saul will need support from the people, and God will provide that for him. But then, they are the na- then there are the naysayers who do not want to show respect to their new king. Saul would be a flawed king, but the naysayers do not seem to be rejecting Saul for any legitimate reason. And simply sees that, seems that in their judgment of Saul, they do not think that God can use Saul to deliver them. The narrator refers to these naysayers as worthless fellows. Just as before, earlier in the book of Samuel, Hophni and Phinehas were referred to as worthless men. At this point, Saul's attitude seems right. He is calm. In regards to these worthless fellows, he holds his peace. There are always going to be two kinds of responses to God's anointed king. There will be those whose hearts are touched by God to follow their new king. And there will be those who have the attitude of despising God's anointed king. But even if if this particular man does not deserve to be God's anointed king. The fact remains that he is God's anointed king. So later in 1 Samuel, David will continue to show respect to Saul, not because of Saul's character, but simply because Saul was the king that God anointed. And as flawed as Saul is in his new role, or he will be in his new role, We must consider that one day there would come a king with no flaws who would be the anointed of God. The very idea of having a king, the very role of a king, is pointing ahead to the king who would perfectly fit this role. He is the king of kings, he is the lord of lords, and his name is Jesus. Jesus was not the picture of a king that the Israelites would have expected or even wanted. While Saul was the tallest and most good-looking guy in the land of Israel, Jesus probably looked very ordinary. Isaiah 53 verse 2 speaks of Jesus. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. That guy who's good-looking and a head taller than everyone else would stand out in a crowd. 
But Jesus wouldn't have stood out based on looks. But when it comes to Jesus, who Jesus was on the inside, his character, his heart, his soul, there has never been anyone who has ever lived or anyone who ever will live who was holy and pure and good as Jesus was and is. Jesus was an incredibly polarizing figure. The religious leaders hated him. They wanted him dead. They were jealous of him. But the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the sinners who knew that they were sinners, loved Jesus. He offered them forgiveness and warned them to turn away from their sins. So if you're here today and you're, you're not a Christian, what is your response to this idea of Jesus being king? Will you follow Jesus or will you despise Jesus? Following Jesus will be a choice that is honored by God. Despising Jesus would have you continue on a path towards death and judgment. So if you're here today and you have questions about Christianity, start by learning about Jesus. Talk to me, talk with one of the elders, talk with other members. It would be great to have you meeting up regularly with someone to, to read the Bible together and ask questions that you may have. It may take time to understand the radical claims that Jesus made about himself and to believe those claims, to understand why he died. But to sum up who Jesus said he is, Jesus is king. And our king came to die to save us from the punishment that we deserve for our sins. And he rose again from the dead to show that his payment for sin was accepted and that death was defeated. So there are only two possible responses, to follow him or despise him. So isn't it a wonderful thing to consider how God has touched our hearts that we would willingly follow Jesus our King? He's the only King worthy of all worship and praise. He's the eternal King who will reign forever. Our King has shown such wonderful mercy and grace to us. So let us live lives that are faithful to Him faithful to follow his commands. Pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for you rule over the universe. And Jesus, we praise you for you are our king. We praise you for you are the true king, the perfect king. We praise you for you are holy. And Father, we do pray that you would empower us by your spirit to live like Jesus. Lord, would we love one another well? Lord, would we love the world in the way that you do? And Lord, would you continue to change us to be more like Christ? In Jesus' name, amen.